When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbara, and the thousands of people past and present who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Thank you so much, Chris Anthony. We have a gentleman that has returned, the incredible animation supervisor, director, animator, Mr. Dave Pruxma. <laughs> You're very kind. He animated Mrs. Potts, everybody. That alone. And Chip. And Chip, too. Off to the cupboard yeah. with you now. It's time uh-huh. for your bedtime. That, that was a throwaway gag, and they liked the kid so much, Bradley Pierce. They put him in everywhere. Oh, that's great. I did most of that animation in the last three months of production. And you know what was cool, too, is that those characters didn't have little arms and legs. They got around as best they could. And that was one of the challenges. Every animated film has its own challenges. And yet, when you play with toys, that's the way you move them around. They bounce around. And and behind the scenes, among Dave's friends, you got Mariah Carey and Lucy Van Pelt. They're the Christmas queen, or they can duke it out about who gets to be the Christmas queen. I'd love yeah. to see somebody do an animated version of that. That would um, be really funny. <laughs> but you are the Christmas king to those of us who know you because you were sharing just crazy songs of all kinds of genres at Christmas time. Yeah. So the Dave mix became the thing you look forward to, just like the Santa on the Shaver commercial. Yes. It was one of those things. I did it for 20 years, even after I left the studio. It was just one of those labors of love. It was like a mixtape, but it started out as a tape that someone had made. It was Chris Buck and um, Mike Giamo. They had a huge record collection, and they made this really great tape. And so I started making them, too. You'd do tapes back then. Technology changed because this started in the late 80s. So you had tapes, one side and the other side. And then CDs started coming in, and I started doing half tape and half CDs. Just a labor of love. I enjoyed it so much. Are your collection real vast, too? Yes, I have hundreds and hundreds of Christmas CDs and, and vinyl. Unique things, unique pressings and stuff like that. And before Thanksgiving, I'd be out in the record stores. Down in Pasadena, they have Canterbury Records, and mm-hmm. I'd be going through the bins and finding stuff. I had one home recording once that someone had given me where it was like wax, you know? I can't resist a Christmas album, and I can't resist one that came from a tire manufacturer. The Good Years and the Firestones, (laughs) and anything that ties in, like J.C. Penney did them for a while, and Banks did them, and so I'll go to Amoeba. They're usually in the dollar bin. They're the best ones, or the most fun ones. And the cool thing about the West Coast is there were things made out here that didn't get anywhere else that were, like, made for local... Like, there's one whatever G. Robinson made for an Episcopal church with a gold oh cover. Goodness. Yeah. And there's... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
a star in the sky now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's a Christmas triptych, I think it's called. And there's one for the sight impaired with all these stars on it and quite a few that I never would have thought existed. But I just love the Columbias and the Capitals. And they're all different, the RCAs. And then Disney made quite a few, too. I have 16-inch transcription discs. Yeah. I got a turntable that would actually play them. It's like needle drop stuff that Anna Barbera cartoons used to use yeah. early on. It's like that, but it's something else. It's a different company. That's a whole other subject there is the library music that everybody used. Yes. You know, when Donna Reed premiered, it had the same background music as Huckleberry Hound. I was just watching Donna Reed and going, every cue. Yeah, I, it did. It did. I remember that. And as a kid, I remember noticing that. And then by quick draw, I think they started throwing in a little personal underscoring. Well, the breakthrough for that, and what we owe a loopy de loop is Hoyt Curtin's first scoring music that ended up in everything in the 60s. Yes, absolutely everything. And actually, that golden record, too, that he did with, with the cast, yeah. Songs of the Flintstones. Songs of the Flintstones, all the music beds of Songs of the Flintstones. Yeah, I mean, they're all, the, they're all the underscoring that have words. Yeah. <laughs> or most of them. Yeah, when you first hear that album... So this is where the end of almost every show came from. And this is where... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's one of the best. And that's um, got to be one of my favorite kids' records of all time. Because they do it just like the show. It's just completely sincere. Yeah, it's sort of a little monologue, a little discussion. And then the finale yeah. is the car hop song. Yes. Was I come on the run with the burger on a bun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing about the Flintstones is it had original songs. The Yabba Dabba Doo song, which I think was the first big HB production number. I was just thinking about that the other day. I woke up with that in my head. I don't know why. But, you know, Hokey Carmichael. And who knew who Hokey Carmichael was in 1962? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly kids didn't. <laughs> it didn't matter. You know, he was this guy with a strange-looking face and didn't have a stony name. You know, he was just him. Yeah, he didn't. That's right. They always made, like, M. Mark Rock and stuff. Why didn't they make... Well, they he was make, the first you know, one. Maybe they didn't think yeah. of it yet. Maybe he said to his contract, I don't want to be named. Or Rock Michael. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they yeah. still know. Speaking of original songs and the Christmas season, there is the wonderful, really what their first Christmas special, I guess, was, even though it was an episode of the Flintstones. It's called the very imaginative title, Christmas Flintstone. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very unique episode. They really did some fun stuff in that. They really explored some other territories, like original songs and letting Ellen Reed sing, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. Again, Betty having, rather than her usual bow, she had like a holly thing. Mm -hmm. It's very nice in that one. They're very colorful, very bright. There was a little bit more money spent on it. It looks that way to me. The presents falling onto the various places, even though it's kind of the same presence that's beautifully animated. Yeah. And there's a lot of backgrounds. Nice, lush yeah, backgrounds. Yeah, they spent a good deal of time on that. There's no color cards. You know, it's all pretty much slick stuff. I used to work with one of the background painters from Hanna-Barbera during that era, uh, Rene Garcia. Yes, uh, yes. He, uh, he worked at Disney in the 80s and maybe early 90s. And uh, he'd bring in the backgrounds and show me. You know, he had like the Jetsons apartment and stuff like that. You know, really neat. You know, to see them and hold them in your hand, that's really kind of cool. What kind of paint did they use? It was like a gouache. Uh, they may have used cell vinyl. I'm not really sure. Watered down cell vinyl because it was a water-based paint. It could have been gouache, probably. Not tempera. It's so wonderful now that you can watch these on DVD and even more so on Blu-ray, especially the early uh -huh. ones. And even in Charlotte's Web, you can see the paint swirling around. You can see the handwork. The shadows, uh, the cell shadows. I love the cell shadows. I do, too. I find that charming. It's that handmade thing. Yeah. You are looking at 
something people made. The artwork's right yeah. in front of you. So in Christmas Flintstone, I'm sure everybody has seen it 400 times. But I used to have a 16 print of it. Did you really? I did. I read it every year for the kids. That's cool. Fred gets the job at the department store. And what makes it special, though, is even for Flintstones, uh, many people feel it got a little sweeter and nicer as time went by. This episode, because it's a Christmas episode, like a lot of 60s shows, has a little bit more of the... um, dipped in starlight yeah the backgrounds are softer and you know the first season of the Flintstones is pretty urban and pretty rough you know everybody talks like a gangsta you know yeah you know all the, all the people in town. but later on it became more like a sitcom and by the last season 65 66 they weren't blue collar workers anymore you know they were just kind of suburban people in the stone age i have a theory about that and i think that part of the reason that the series changed its tone and it didn't completely, was because this really was still the early days of TV. And people didn't still have TVs in some places. So from 60 to 66, that was when viewership was growing tremendously. And you had a massive audience, and the Flintstones had to appeal to everybody. And so they had to have the kid-friendly episode, the the kind of fantastic episode, which they did fantasy kind of stuff even in the early seasons. And if you watch the last season, there are still adult episodes in it, which you wouldn't think. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Some, some better than the fourth, the, the fifth season. The Rockopoly the one, and, you know, Fred's jerk. Yeah, that, that one's the one I'm thinking about in particular. That was one that harkened back to an actual adult kind of theme. So they were combining Gazoo with that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what got him back to his planet, helping Fred not be a jerk. <laughs> no, yeah. I think it was the ballet. Oh, that was another one where he shrinks down real small and runs by. That. <laughs> it's been on for so long. There's just so many iconic scenes. and You can actually remember the underscoring now yes you can each scene there's two songs in christmas flintstone that christmas is my favorite time of year because and then dino the dinosaur yes bits and pieces of that they ended up in a few other cartoons as well as background music they did and interestingly enough that episode was made in 64 Mm -hmm. and that's when they were making johnny quest so Mm -hmm. sometimes they'd like go into a recording session for johnny quest and do that on the johnny quest tapes just the underscoring, not okay. the Alan Reed vocal, for Christmas is my favorite time of year and Dino the Dinosaur. It's really nicely done, and the composer of those two songs was John McCarthy. Who, oh, really? Um, John McCarthy wrote some of the songs. Doug Goodwin wrote the rest for The Man Called Flintstone, and yes. he wrote the script and the songs for the two Sunset albums. Shazam and the beautifully done Orchestra Family Flintstones. But those two songs, for those who say, well, why did they have Henry Corden sing for Fred? In huge respect and love for Alan Reed, you can kind of see that... Yeah, you know, the dinosaur is just a, a little ditty, you yeah. know, shall we say. Yeah, yeah <laughs> they were written so he could sing them. Rodgers and Hammerstein did that for Gertrude Lawrence because she didn't have a lot of range. So her songs in The King and I were written in her range. The Sherman brothers were great at doing that for Annette. They knew just how to write so she'd sound her best. And that's what they did with Alan Reed. And I don't know how many takes he had, but it's endearing. It's lovely. I love hearing Alan Reed always, always, no matter what he does. I think his voice is so real. He's such a good actor. Brings so much to his parts. I can't say enough good about him, but he does not sing well. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you know, what's the most touching part of that is, of course, you've got adults playing the little kids. 
even when they're like, I love you, Santa, that's a little cloying. But when Alan Reed says, wow, these kids can really get to you, that's such a well-said line. It's yeah. still very touching, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. You know, it's a rare moment for Fred to have an emotional thing because he's kind of blustery most of the time. Next time you listen to it, really listen to it, he sounds like he'd been smoking or something. And you could actually hear a gravelly part at one point. There's a smile on every face. You know? When Alice in Wonderland was being done, I don't think he could have gone, We're just like butter. And he had a I lot love that of. Song too. That's really great. It's really <sighs> nicely done. What a great song. And you know, speaking of Alice in Wonderland, and please let the angels above find some way to get that onto streaming more than anything restored and streaming on max and yeah. perhaps as a blu-ray or a dvd a whole audience is out there waiting for it and it's got fred and barney in it but we both share an affection for alice in wonderland because i believe that was you saw it on tv originally i saw it when it first aired in color we went to the neighbor's house to watch it in color oh my cousin's house so i remember seeing it in color because we didn't have a color tv in 66 i also remember standing in the grocery store line on a friday we always shopped on fridays and you know how they had the tv guides and racks right there mm-hmm. check out the cover of the tv guide that week was batman mm-hmm. it was yellow i have a copy of it actually but inside i was flipping through it while we were waiting to check out and inside, they had a whole spread. Alice and TV Land. Yeah. And Rexall, you know, sponsor and stuff like that. I was so excited. I couldn't wait to see it. You know, oh, I just me could too. Not. I clipped yeah. the ad out and clipped all that and kept, I don't have it anymore, but I remember it was on a Wednesday night in place of Batman, actually. And it was, you know, against Lost in Space. I even know what the episode was. It was the one with Mercedes McCambridge with the hillbillies from space. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. March 30th, 1966. And interestingly, the composers, Lee Adams and Charles Strauss, also did the songs for It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which premiered, I think, within days of that special airing. Did they also write McGoose Christmas Carol? That was Julie Stein and... Uh, oh, yeah. The songs in that are terrific. The animation... <laughs> yeah, oh, my goodness. Those songs just... The songs in the Mr. Magoo Christmas Carol just rip your heart out. You know They do. They do. It's, it's an amazing score. I think it's uh, Julie Stein and... Oh, Bob Merrill and Julie Stein. That's who it is. That's Bob Merrill it. and Julie Stein. Shortly before they went on to do Funny Girl. They also did the songs for another Christmas special that's kind of weird if you've never seen it, called The Dangerous Christmas of Red Riding Hood, which you can see the kinescope of. No one can find the videotape in color, but it was an ABC special. The score sounds kind of like Mr. Magoo because Walter Scharf conducts that one as well. It is a very odd special because it has Cyril Richard as the sympathetic wolf who wants people to understand, Liza Minnelli as Red Riding Hood, Vic Damone as the hunter guy or the, the woodsman, and the animals, the rock group, the animals. So in the middle of the special, the animals start singing a rock song. <laughs> is, it, is it animated or is it a rock? No, it's a one-hour TV special. Yeah, uh, so those of you looking for something to watch that's unusual on Christmas, tune in for that. We have kind of gotten off the subject, but they all kind of fit together because even stuff that isn't necessarily Hanna-Barbera is connected to it, which leads to a feature film that started as a special called Santa and the Three Bears. Yeah! And that isn't Hanna-Barbera, but it kind of is. It's a stepchild. <laughs> yeah. Tony Benedict was, of course, a legendary 
person at Hannah. He helped develop the character of Astro on Jetsons. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He wrote a number of the Jetsons episodes. And the Flintstones. Quite a few other shows. From oh, Batman. yeah, the Adam Ant Secret Squirrel show, he gave us Do the Bear. Oh, okay. With, with uh-huh. the Hillbilly Bears. He's a master. So the story goes that it was called Yellowstone Cubs, and he pitched it to Joe Barbera, and Joe Barbera said it's very nice, but it doesn't really have any villains, and I guess he didn't think the story was all that strong. So he decided to make it himself. Hanna-Barbera artists moonlighted frequently, and I don't think the studio cared all that much, because around the same time... Here's another sort of related special. The Night Before Christmas that was made at um, Playhouse Pictures. I don't recall that one. Well, that's also on YouTube. That was the one with Olan Soule doing the voice of Clement Moore. And it's the story of why he wrote the Night Before Christmas poem. Okay. daughter isn't feeling well, and she's asking for a book about Santa Claus, and he goes into town, can't find one, and they say, please do something, she's asking, and he just sort of makes it up. No, he wrote it down, and then he reads it to her. And then the Norman Luboff Choir, not everybody knows this who's, who's seen the special. The version they do is by Ken Darby, which was probably the most renowned musicalized version of that. You see those names on all the Christmas records. (laughs) Yeah, well, Ken Darby was with the Kingsmen, and he was on the Fibber McGee and Molly show. And for the very first time that was done, it was like in 42 on Fibber McGee and Molly. And they actually made a 78 set out of that. But then other groups recorded it. And at Disney World, and I believe at Disneyland, they used that rendition for the Mickey's Night Before Christmas show. Interesting. Interesting. Anyway, Iwo Takamoto is credited with the character design, and it looks, again, (laughs) it doesn't sound... Very much like, you know, like Hanna-Barbera. I would have thought it was when I was a kid, when it was kind of put out in one of those Saturday matinees, you know? Oh, Santa and Three Um, Bears, yes. And they blitz ads on TV and stuff like that. I think we went to go see it in the theater, but I have seen it. I did see it in the theater, and here's the weird part. He did produce it. Tony Benedict Productions on the uh, soundtrack album. It's got a really nice soundtrack and a song by Doug Goodwin, and then he wrote some songs. But to get a distributor, he ended up dealing with a guy named Barry Mahon in Florida. Barry Mahon, if you also go on the YouTube and look up Pirate's World, the theme park that was there from like 1967 to about 73, that is a story in itself. And it had a movie studio, if you could call it that, next to Pirate's World. And they made the renowned, and I'm saying this sarcastically, Santa and the Ice Cream Bunny. Oh, that one I heard of. You got to watch that because, uh, or watch it with one of the commentary things where they do the comedy commentary. It's a, well, I won't even, I won't give it away. But Barry Mahon became the distributor of this and put his name on it. And actually really was a sore spot with Tony because he was sort of sharing the credit. They put this frame around it. Now, if you see it on, like, Tubi, you're probably going to see it with Hal Smith in the live-action wraparounds playing the Rangers, sort of telling the story, and you see the Christmas tree and the toys. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. You can also possibly even see the original Yellowstone Cubs titles with the full credits of all the HB people who worked on it. That was the original print, but that was chopped, and the prologue and the ending were put on it. The Hal Smith one is fine, but what Mahon also did in Florida was he was promoting Pirate's World and Ocean World. So two other wraparounds were made, two other frame stories. 
the Ocean World one makes no sense because it's this Christmas movie, and then you're seeing porpoise shows and stuff, and then they sit down to have lunch, and Mr. Ranger, will you tell us that story? And then it goes into the animation. I was so baffled when I went to see it because I didn't know any of this. But in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, they had something called four-walling. That referred to the four walls of a theater. That was back before there were multi-cinemas and stuff. Right. And they would rent theaters, and then they would blitz with advertising. And uh, yes, the yes. commercials for Santa Claus, you know, it was yes. real fuzzy and real cheap, but it played and played on local stations. And that was the movie. The soundtrack album is gorgeous, which I i don't think he ever got a dime out of the film, but maybe the soundtrack, because he is a songwriter on that. But I'm talking much more than you. What were your impressions of it? Well, I don't have a lot, because I... When was that, 71, it 72? Was, yeah, that's when it started showing up. I think he may have been working yeah, on it see, in the late 60s. I was already 12 or 13 by then, and it was kind of a little too kiddy, so I didn't go see it. But I, since then, you know, because it was animation, I did see it broadcast on television and whatnot. I remember the, the Ranger wraparound, but I don't remember the Florida one. But that would have confused me, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember the color being nice. I remember the background being pretty nice. I loved hearing Hal Smith. He's so warm and he's so great. I just assumed it was Hanna-Barbera because Gene Vanderpile does the voice of the mother bear. Mm-hmm. And there's so many familiar voices. I don't think Dawes did it. No, it's only like, four characters. Hal Smith, Gene Vanderpile is the mama bear, Nana, uh, and then uh, uh-huh. Bobby Reha, who was just in Jack and the Beanstalk. That's why I think it was oh, okay. made around 68 or around that time originally, or when he recorded oh, okay, it. Okay, and yeah. someone uh-huh. named Annette Farah as uh, the other bear. It's just the two bears, the ranger, and the mother bear. It's a very, very simple, sweet story. It's cute. I do remember that back then, they'd always put a little extra into theatrical releases. You know, mm-hmm. like Man Called Flintstone is slightly better than an episode of The Flintstones. Oh, it definitely um, is, especially yeah. the musical and, numbers. Yeah, in places. Uh, and in other places, it kind of... I think Hey There, Jogi Bear really looks good. I think they were trying to make an effort on that one, and they brought back a lot of the MGM guys, and yeah. they had some Warner Brothers guys, Ken Harris. Chris Freeling worked on it a bit. Yeah. And it's actually a lovely picture. Mm-hmm. The Bob Gentle backgrounds are really nice. This one does not quite go to that level. It's still nice, but it has that kind of like overall brownish quality. I don't know whether it's just the That was the new look. I guess. I guess like Scooby-Doo is either brown or purple or green. The funny thing is that that look became the Flintstone look from then on. Yes, the, and yeah. it's muddy. It's muddy. Yeah, the blue background, and maybe the blue was because of black and white TVs. It could have been. But recently there was a direct-to-video uh, film, the WWE Flintstones one, and great yeah. care was taken to have the original sort of blue bedrock, the original backgrounds. It right. was actually quite, I mean, take or leave whether you like the wrestling stuff, but it was quite nicely done, and the attempt was to recreate the voice acting and the feel of the show. It's hard to bring those characters into up-to-date because things have changed so much since yeah. 1960. It really is difficult to bring them in. A lot of the references you know, don't work anymore. Drive-in restaurants and things like that. You know, TV is different now. The little antennas and stuff like that. So, But you can tell there's the air and loving that goes into those things, those modern versions. Even the Jetson wrestling one. It has a very good color palette. They really tried to match the voices as close as possible. More than they used to. <laughs> the Santa and the Three Bears, it just had a muddy quality, and it seemed like it was more for kids. That's why I know less about it. But I do remember it. I, I have seen it. And it had songs, as I recall. It yeah, yeah it did. It had about four and, songs. And it was slightly better than the average TV show at mm-hmm. that time. 
But if you take out the beginning and the end, the prologue, you know, the wraparounds, it is about 51 minutes. That's why the story is pretty simple. I don't know if Tony had a print of it, a good print of it or not, but it went in the public domain. So it's very hard to see a decent print of it where you can make out the dialogue and it's usually very muddy and fuzzy, sometimes pinkish. It would just be nice if there is a version that exists that could be redistributed, but... you think there would be some. Well, don't you feel that in this era of, okay, we had COVID, we had setbacks, we need revenue and all this, that some of this stuff should be mined for its marketing potential when content is so necessary? It's like there's a lot of stuff out there that is nice and doesn't have any objectionable material and could be shown and could be restored and could be found. And Yeah, I don't know. Are kids too hip now for it? I mean... I, I don't know if they are. Because when they were doing Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, that was risky too, doing the Broadway sound. You worked on Oliver and Company. The new cartoons were going to have Billy Joel in them and be a little bit more upbeat and contemporary. And along comes the traditional with a contemporary feel, but nevertheless, the traditional Broadway sound. And Beauty and the Beast opens with, what, eight minutes or so of nothing but singing? It seems normal now, but I wonder if they could sell that today. That yeah, those those were groundbreaking. And you're right. All products are of an era. Some stand the test of time, some don't. In this case, I guess Santa and the Three Bears. Well, <laughs> no, I know that, but I'm talking bad. about just as fodder, as something. Yeah. Uh, not just that, but a lot of stuff that's in vaults and in libraries. And poor Jerry Beck is always trying to encourage it, but I just think it makes business sense. You've got the stuff. It's there. It's there, and you can use it, and you can certainly fill coffers with it, so it would seem to be nice. Yeah, and young children really like that kind of light entertainment. The Rankin-Bass specials are still stronger than ever, and they're traditional musicals. Right, and they're charming, especially the stop motion, you know, Rudolph. To me, that that was like living toys to me. Exactly. It was like the Macy's Christmas display windows or the Disneyland ones. Yeah. I think it isn't a matter of, is it new, is it old? It's like, is it good, you know? Is it good? That definitely makes it work. It spans the test of time. If it's good, it speaks to all generations. Yeah, if it's entertaining, makes you smile. And you always make us smile, Dave Pruxma, as I wrap up. Another edition uh, of nice, our I show. I saw what you did there. <laughs> yeah, it was subtle. So I'm very grateful and hope to have you back for another edition of our show. Anytime. You know I love chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays and bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara with Greg Airborne. Please join us again and many thanks for listening.